Welcome to the Brothers Zoll Podcast, a show 37 years in the making, hosted by David, John, and Simeon Zoll. Join us as we recreate some of our favorite dinner table discussions from growing up. Talking theology, culture, jokes, and everything in between. My brothers... My brothers, it's so good to see your faces for another episode of this podcast. Today is the day that we tackle the word, the big word, the word that sort of hangs like a, um, like an albatross or a happy sign over many of our lives, and that is, um, it's a, a very positive thing. Of course, that word is grace. Grace. I can't wait to hear what we have to say about something that we feels like we sort of spent all our time talking about, but. That's why it's maybe a little intimidating to try to encapsulate. It's the one that both feels elementary, but also enormous, and to which we've devoted uh, our lives, my life, your life, I think. This is a word that gets bandied about, certainly when Mockingbird is talked about, or people try to characterize that, uh, our sort of, uh, our theology, to talk about it as that grace theology. It can be used as a, as a very positive thing, like those are the guys talking about grace all the time, um, or a negative thing. I mean, I definitely have been called a, a grace Nazi before, um, and it's, it bo- kind of boggles the mind to how the word grace, which seems to connote positive things no matter who you speak it to, you know, in a very secular context, it's positive, whether, I mean, maybe it has to do with ballet or something at that point, but, um, or Princess Diana, I don't know, but it, it feels like it's a positive thing. But when people try to characterize what it is, um, what we're trying to get across about Christianity, about God, about life, this word grace is the word I use, you know, and it's in the, it's in the mission statement of Mockingbird, connecting the, the grace of God with the uh, cares and concerns of everyday life. Um, but again, it can be used, one of the things I've noticed is, as I've grown older is this is a word that is very elastic and it is used by different people to mean different things at different times. Um, and so it, it, it involves some clarification but I mean, before we actually even try to define it, am I am I unfairly characterizing this? Do, do you feel? Have you been described this way? Um, and how do you respond to that? I've also, you know, experienced it being used pejoratively. That we're sort of like uh, Christians who are into milk but never get to meat. Uh, and somebody yeah. called me uh, once a gracist, and it was meant to be a sort of overly. Uh, I mean, it was a criticism. Um, and, you know, I, but I will say, I mean, I arrived at a new church that I had no experience with two years ago. And I just said, look, I want everything we do to um, be derived from and boiled down to and be traceable to this single word, grace. And to my amazement, people have responded like um, they both appreciated the clarity and the simplicity But also, they talk like it's some fresh thing that I've come up with and brought to town, or um, like they've never really been in a church where they just talked about grace, 
or they've never really thought that much mm-hmm. about grace front and center or God in those terms in specific. And I um, find that it is such a helpful way in and sort of great defining note, like sort of bass note to sound. And then, you know, you sort of like hit that, that tuning fork and then you allow everything to either um, sift down into that note or sort of be revealed for being of some other nature. It's like they say, it's like a, a pool that is uh, shallow enough that babies can wade into it and deep enough that elephants can swim. That's how I find the word to operate. Ooh, I love that. I love that, John. What about you, Sam? I'd say for me, it's funny, as you're, you guys are both talking, I realize I probably don't get the sort of, uh, the, the side of, sort of the, oh, those guys who talk about grace all the time, that stigma, except maybe somehow by association. Um, uh, but partly because it's funny how far you can get in academic theology without always, without actually saying what you really think about the core, most important issues in theology. <laughs> um, and so I've now done that. I've now really written a book where I say, including what I think about about grace after you know, 10 years in the making, so I'm interested to know how that changes now that people have a, have sort of staked my um, staked my claim. Um, but uh, also, you know, studying theology, teaching theology, you, you start to see, you know, the word really does mean a lot of different things very specifically in different traditions, and, and whether grace is a sort of substance or whether it's a, um, a, a way of relating to a person, I mean, it's not at all a given theologically and traditionally and so on. So I have a stronger sense than I used to of just the, the the ways in which that word has been used in different ways. Um, and it can create confusion, you know, like, well, what do we, we all, we all agree, yay, grace, but what do we actually mean by it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the conundrum here. Well, I'm going to read uh, our attempt to boil it down a little bit. And because th- there's plenty of euphemisms, I want to talk about our favorite sort of euphemisms for grace, but this is a definition Simeon, that really you played a big role in writing for Mockingbird way back when, when we were trying to put together a glossary. Broadly speaking, grace can be understood as God's unmerited favor towards human beings, his one-way sacrificial love for sinful men and women who deserve anything but. It is a gift with no strings attached. Grace is the answer we receive in Christ to the question of God's disposition toward troubled people like you and me. How many times can we mess up before we have exhausted God's forgiveness? In Christ, God's grace is revealed to be inexhaustible, the death and resurrection of Christ being the bedrock of this assurance. Through it, we are secured of God's favor, come what may. Of course, not every Christian tradition agrees on the nature or definition of grace. Grace in New Testament usage is complex, to be sure, but the fundamental point of interpretive contention can be boiled down to whether grace is an essence that is imparted, or a gift that is imputed. That is, whether God's grace changes people into objects that are worthy of love, or if his grace creates the beloved thing by faith, whether it is a change agent or a saving one. While not denying that it can have a transforming effect, we use it in the latter sense. Grace, of course, does have horizontal meaning as well, meaning sort of relational meaning. We often experience grace in such terms, being loved when we feel unlovable, praised when we deserve reproach, rewarded when we should be punished, etc. Does that jog anything for you? John, I'm sure you've got many things to say about this. I I think it's a great definition. Nice job, Sim. (laughs) I like that you get into all those different areas, uh, the, the imputation, impartation, the vertical versus horizontal, um, the unconditionality. There are a lot of different bases 
covered there. I mean, I like the generality of the word, if you want to know the truth. I find that um, people, for the most part, unless they're coming from like true pharisaical Christian, uh, you know, tiny cubby holes, uh, have positive associations with the word grace. And if you have a negative association with the word grace, my gosh, um, either you're really understanding it or I'm really worried about you. Mm. But for me, it's a good word because it is somewhat amorphous and because it's hard to pin down, um, which is true to the very essence of grace. I find that uh, the moment we start talking about it, it's a little like trying to capture lightning in a bottle. Um, we don't really possess it. We can't really generate it. It is not something that we contribute to. And so here we are sitting in our new podcast talking about grace. And I don't know about you, but I'm sitting here thinking, uh-oh, uh what if we don't have any grace in the show? And, and then praying, dear God, please give us grace for our grace podcast. We really need it. We really need you. Uh, and, and so anyway, those are just my immediate thoughts. It's funny. I, uh, I vaguely, I, I remember writing the Holy Spirit one uh, more directly, but I, it does sound like like sounds me like at various, it sounds like points. you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I mean, so there's, you know, it, it there. It's it's a right. It's a term that there's a, there's a lot of ways into to talking about what's what's worth talking about here. I guess the thing that I immediately think of, and and maybe what I think of, I mean, so of course, you know, God's grace given in 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 Jesus Christ. It's some. It's 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 the word. It's the main word that we have, I guess, along with maybe gospel for. Um, for the good news of Christianity, for the way in which somehow this this religion and this person who uh, was incarnate um, it brings good news, makes the world better and our lives better as a result of what he has been and done. And um, uh, so that's at the most kind of really general level, and, and that somehow it's uh it's not from us and it's not deserved and it's uh it's a consequence of god's love it's it's what god's love for us looks like in practice and how it manifested um in practice so i think and and those kind of general levels i don't think any any christian tradition can really disagree with with any of that and you know sometimes we get very caught up in in squabbles about these things in ways that aren't really, you know, in a world that's so so lacking in, in any kind of grace, any kind of sense of the reality of God and his love for us, you know, um, for me it has a lot to do with um, just a, a, a view of, of what it's like to live as a human being in the world, where you really feel like that the experience of being human is very, very often one of anxiety over being loved, and a, an anxiety over over whether you know, one is worth worth uh, worth being loved, and um, and then a picture of what human beings do, at least as I've experienced it, as I probably imagine you guys have. You know, we spend our lives working to try to generate belovedness, recognition. Um, you know, whether it's from you know r romantically or recognition in in our careers or, or all these different ways in which you're sort of you you spend so much of your energy towards sort of trying to control an outcome, mm. and that one really really helpful way of understanding what Jesus' ministry was about is as a a word to all of us in this plight that we don't have to do that that we are loved by God regardless of um, uh, 
you know, prior to uh, all of that uh, effort, that we are utterly, completely loved, and and that that somehow really genuinely transforms what it's like to live in the world uh, for the better, to live free, to live um, uh, with a huge amount less anxiety, a lot more freedom to love others. So there's something about that and getting at the nitty gritty of what that's actually like um, that, uh, well, I'm hoping we can talk about. When I wrote the book Seculosity, what I was trying to make a case for was uh, trying to capture what it feels like to live in the world where all you get all day long is uh, measurement and evaluation and uh, ladder climbing and told that you're not enough. And we're the, so basically the law. And that's what seems to really have resonated with people, that yes, we live in a merciless world in which we seem to, can't seem to outrun accusation. And it's there all the time. And it's earning and we like it because it gives us control. However, what, it's a portrait of a world that lacks grace, that lacks um, mercy, but really lacks um, some kind of something that lies beyond deserving beyond deserving because everyone you know you get down to why people are so angry and bitter um, in their actual lives most of them are because they feel they deserve something that they didn't get or they lost something that they that they had or they're afraid someone's going to take away something that they feel they deserve so this word deserving this earning it's really at the at the at the core of a lot of our emotional life. And then you also have, when, I'm, when we talk about justification, it's not justification for the sake of like being exonerated, though that's really what it is, but it's, it's because we believe that if we are justified, if we do enough, well, then we'll be loved. Then we, will be, then we will be able to receive love, that I have to do such and such in order to become lovable. And that's what is driving this. Now, grace is saying that you are, you are loved because of who God is, not because of who you are, and like before you do anything. And that's like a tremendously freeing and counterintuitive word that is, as you say, like, you don't hear it. When, when, I, when I tell, when, I, when our students at UVA, when they go out into the world and I'm trying to convince them, like, why would anyone go to church? And I always say, well, because the only voice you're going to hear is going to be some, and it's the voice inside your head, is going to be some version of do more, be more, try harder, uh, or you, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> and or you're the most amazing person as long as you keep doing this. And uh, if, if, if church is worth anything, it's the one place you go where you might hear the voice of God, which is the voice of grace. Would you like some pie? Massive, massive quantities and a glass of water, sweetheart. My socks are on fire. When I, when I talk about something that's beyond deserving, because I'm trying to get into my emotional life. I mean, just yesterday, we were, uh, my wife and I were talking about whose w- turn to walk the dog is it. And, uh, you know, you get into a, yet another, why do we get a dog? Because you, dogs like sort of give you grace. They sort of love you unconditionally. And yet all of a sudden this dog is a, is a venue for scorekeeping and like whose turn is it? I did it last time, so I've earned the right not to do it this time. Um, this is from Dorothy Martin 
who was uh, my wonderful therapist for quite a long time. And uh, she wrote a book called Beyond Deserving. She was a child therapist, child psychologist. And she sort of got to, I think, the heart of the matter emotionally in a way that is really helpful for me. She says, this phrase, beyond deserving, may be a bit puzzling at first glance. After all, the idea of deserving permeates our language and is taken for granted in much of our daily life, from grades at school to rewards for exceptional performance, such as whether one deserved a gold medal or the Nobel Prize, to our ideas of criminal justice. He got what he deserved. We might say uh, that about some poor wretch sentenced to execution for a foul crime or about a child who received a humiliating failing grade in English for plagiarizing his term paper. Or on the positive side, one might say to a friend, a nice person like you deserves to have such a lovely necklace. My own fascination with the truth that there is something very important beyond our deserving began some decades ago when I heard a sermon on the parable of the workers in the vineyard, Matthew 20, verse 1 through 16, who all received the same pay from the master, though some had worked a long day, some a half day, and some just a short part of the day. The unforgettable gift from that sermon was a new understanding that the major biblical message is about something that cannot be earned. In this parable, fairness and merit utterly disappear in an inbreaking of a powerful force that transcends deserving altogether. In my decades of working with children and families, the significance of this force has become incarnate before my eyes. As I have seen the superior potency of an approach to a misbehaving child that has no element of this for that implied in it. Parental love, and by extension mentoring love, is authentic and effectual in proportion to the degree that it transcends the commonly assumed principle of the circular exchange, that is to say this for that. All true love is a stranger to that kind of thinking. The justice idea of reward according to what is deserved is replaced by the much more powerful force of non-contingent, compassionate alliance with the essential personhood of the other, however small that part may appear to be, against the destructive forces opposing that person's good. Oh. A lot of words, but I don't know if they've been bettered, you know, when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, people get nervous when we talk a little bit about horizontal grace. So wh why, John, what's, what does that jog in you? Oh, well, so can I say that I love the quote? And uh, like you, you used the word counterintuitive. I think that's an important word. Um, for me, I, I almost want to say that if you want to know how I think about grace, you just put that emoji up of the um, smiley face having its mind blown, like with the atomic bomb explosion on top of the head. And that is how I think of grace, because it completely explodes my default world and the world that I, the way that human beings and human nature tries to make sense of life, I think boils down to all the things you've been talking about, performancism, conditionality, justice, this for that, as Dorothy Martin puts it. Um, and I happen to still be a fan of just the, the words unconditional love. I think those really are a great entryway in and convey an enormous amount of what makes the character of God's love so distinct. Um, and I also really think that this is why I like to lead with it at church, in part, is because I think it helps people to understand how the faith differentiates itself from everything else. And that means both how they are thought of in totally different terms, 
by God, in theory, in the church, uh, and through the paradigm. Really, that's what it is. It's an interpretive paradigm, in part. Um, I always just say it's the how of love. Uh, you know, for me, I find that when I start talking in these terms, people both um, feel like they're being stretched and um, feel like they're coming home. Uh, and just this idea that she has of something existing beyond our uh, default settings is, I find, incredibly compelling and um, so true. You know, it, it's just a little, it's a like, it's like you've been a starfish with um, eyes that only exist through the suction cups and you've been facing down. And suddenly it's like somebody flips the starfish over and the eyes are all suddenly looking upward. And there's an entire huge universe out there beyond your little solipsistic inward-focused angling. And for me, the thing that really opens the door to all of that is, um, I think, the word unconditional. Uh, because it, it just, I mean, I remember one of my friends who I used to live with, when he was a little kid in their kitchen, um, he and his brother would argue a lot. And not that we ever did, but, you know, some brothers apparently do. And they had a, uh, a scale. They bought a scale like you find in a science class, you know, with weights and measures. And they had it in the kitchen on the kitchen counter. And it was so that every night after dinner, they could weigh the desserts because they would get into such fights about who got the larger piece of cake, who got more ice cream. And they were, as children, so wired in to keeping things even, you know, a kind of um, mm -hmm. making sure that everything was equal, that uh, they had to, the parents just resorted to having a scale so that they would say, you each got the exact same amount so that they never got into any kind of questionable territory. But that's what it's like, I think, when we try to sort of inflict this even-steven idea of merit onto the world that just completely spits in the face of those ideas, whether it's in a, in a kind of um, disparaging sense where life, it's almost like it just likes to mock you, you know, and show you how unfair things are. You know, and how little your merit means. Um, but also, at the same time, there's kind of grace, which I think explodes those ideas of where we find value. I love your uh, starfish image, John, because it does feel, I mean, the, the talking about grace, it brings out kind of the, the evangelist uh, in me, or at least the, the, the better sense of that for me, where I'm like, I just, it just seems like something I want to tell people about because it's so wonderful that you, the world really can work in other ways, uh, and that, you know, when you fail in all sorts of ways, fail to get what you want, fail to um, find the love that you are trying to generate, or all these things, that there is a place you can go uh, where those things don't determine really anything in the end. I mean, that you have, you have a, that your, your worth, your sense of what your life means is just not dependent on all these, the endless rat races that we all uh, live in and that Dave has written about so well and that we can all um, relate to.
I want to say, I think um, one question I get, which I think is a good one, um, a worthwhile question to ask is, uh, I think there are answers to it, but is, you know, but don't, doesn't an idea of grace, much justification of my faith, that kind of stuff, doesn't that depend on an idea that human beings are, are sort of terrified of, of being judged by God, like walking around being terrified of being judged by God? And isn't that something that people, Christians sort of used to feel, we used to be sort of so, uh, you know, um, habituated into that, you know, in the 18th century, you listen to Jonathan Edwards sermons and you have this strong sense of your unworthiness. And, and actually that turned out to be kind of destructive in certain ways, bad for your self-esteem, this kind of thing. And we've learned to, we've gotten to a place where actually we sort of think of the basic, at least conceptually, we think that everyone's basically kind of good and, and we don't like, we think judgment is really bad. And, um, so how do, how do we relate to these? Is it really right to have a, a way of thinking about Christianity and, and of God's, Grace, that is, that, that it will, if it depends on an idea that I've, I'm worried about judgment, doesn't that mean that um, it's not actually as relevant as it used to be, uh, as it used to be in other periods in the world? And um, as I think we, we all would have sort of strong uh, responses to that, uh, you know, um, but the thing I would want to sort of start with is that I, I guess I, I find that I really do think that people are sitting around worried, um, worried about how, about, especially about being loved. I don't know. For me, that's always what it, what it comes back to. And I think, uh, we really don't feel that we deserve it. I, I, I still feel that way. I remember you just talked about pie, John, actually a key moment in the, in the development of my theological anthropology, i.e. when I started thinking about what Christianity kind of means and about human nature, I was reading, it's in high school, I was reading the Brothers Karamazov, and uh, it was Christmas time, and Dave in, uh, had sort of ordered me to go get him some pie, some blueberry pie that was left over that Mom had made. It was after Christmas. It was around this time of year in my, in my memory. Maybe it was Thanksgiving. And, uh, and we were watching something in the TV room, and I went out, and there, were, there was basically one piece, one left that needed to be divided into two. I divided as best I could into two, and they were essentially identical. You know, they probably would have done pretty well on that scale. But one of them was just the more attractive piece to me, <laughs> right? Uh, for whatever reason, and it just—I took—I was like—and so I took that one and brought the other one to Dave. He'll never know, <laughs> you know, that he got the slightly <laughs> worse piece. I know now. Uh, I know now. And uh, <laughs> all is revealed, Dave. Um, and uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, my default option, right, just in life, even with my brother, who I love so much and who I at that particular moment had no beef with. Uh, mm-hmm was nice to qualifier. choose me over him, right. to choose my, uh, my best, um, you know, to choose the best thing for me, if I can get away with it, uh, over even somebody I love as much as, as, as Dave, who I'm so close to, and that that was, oh my gosh, that's my whole life, is making that decision. So far as I can get away with it, I'm going to choose the, the piece of pie that I like better, um, and everything else is just negotiating. <laughs> uh, so that that, and that I don't feel good about it. I was like, oh, that's terrible. That stinks. I'm not a good person. <laughs> uh, and it's that kind of context that it emerged for me that something like undeserving grace could have existential meaning beyond just, just being loved, but also being loved in, in the context of, of, of maybe genuinely not deserving it. Well, that's, I think that's a brilliant way to talk about it, Sim, because grace doesn't really have any meaning outside of, you know, 
law or the the anthropology people who 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 uh, don't need anything don't need grace you know so there's 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 no um, if you've never done anything that deserves punishment well then uh, grace would be completely incomprehensible to you or if you don't believe on some level that you are unlovable then it's going to be very difficult to try to it makes sense of this idea that you're, you, you are lovable, but not because of necessarily your own attributes. Uh, so it, it, grace, I, I think like sometimes it becomes a shorthand for law and grace. Uh, meaning like the, the, the you're, the, there is a sense in which, um, if people, the person who has everything doesn't, won't, wouldn't be surprised by a gift or doesn't want any gifts, you know? The person who is completely content and completely self-actualized uh, d- doesn't need anything from the outside world that wouldn't also need love. And so uh, grace, I think, is, it operates from that point it's of funny, view. Where both of you guys are talking a lot about love. And, you know, while I do think it's the how of love, like I said, I actually don't tend to think of it in those terms when I'm doing ministry. I tend to think of it more as people are imprisoned in life by merit and performancism and weights and measures and the accounting department of both their heads and their society. And so what I am trying to do is offer an antidote to or a, a kind of um, a, a reverse negative picture of things from the world they are so bound by and hemmed in on every side from. And granted, all of that ultimately probably could be boiled down to some lacking in love or feeling of deserving. But I find what people are thinking about is not that they don't feel loved so much as that they don't feel like they performed well enough. For love, though, for that's what their ultimate. That's the ultimate prize. Is the, the, I'm, I'm therefore worthy, because what what is, what is the yeah. end of perform? Performanceism is usually a a, a, uh, a proposition that you don't even get to the other side of what it is you're performing for. But what you're performing for is some sense of glory, which translates yeah. to yeah. love, uh, or or admiration. Or, you know, or you respect. use the word enoughness a lot in your book. Power maybe is what what your enoughness. I I. The, I mean, the answer that you give to people who say that people aren't terrified of being judged, they may not be terrified of being judged by God. We may have domesticated God or made God irrelevant, but people are terrified of being judged no matter yeah. what. And like, that's what is the, the one of the great insights of social scientists is, is these days is always that we do have an inner lawyer, an inner accountant, and they're running the show. Accountants, rampants, And not just terrified of being judged, but they've already been judged as terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think, where we're <laughs> yes. operating from. It's like, I'm a failure. I've wasted all the opportunities I've been given. I've blown it. Uh, it's too late for me. You know, that is, I find, where most people are living. Yeah, it's your own voice. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a thing of like, well, I have to find enough people that, that, I'm, that, I, that I can feel good about myself around, a.k.a. people that are worse than me in some way, or I'm just going to spend my life spinning on a treadmill trying to re- reach that Instagram uh, ideal of the perfect life. But 
grace is again it's it's the great contribution you know it's the it john is the it's the answer to the people who are in chains of their maybe their own making maybe the culture but you know they're in uh, the they're in those chains if the culture made them the culture was made by human beings just like us so it's like it's a default setting to which uh, one hopes there's an answer and that God would, I, I get the other thing I get when we talk about justification and grace and these terms and it being sort of an acquittal or an absolution, you always, you, I always get the pushback of sort of, well, you know, that's so reductionistic or juvenile to think of the cosmic world as a, as a, as a courtroom. And you say like, well, just don't worry about the cosmic courtroom. Just think about your own head. Think about your own family dynamics or your own marriage or your own relationships or lack thereof or your own bank account. That's where like people are. There is a court, whether or not it's, it, it should be this way is a different story. I always feel it's a gracious act of, of God to even condescend to sort of address us in those terms, you know, in the terms in which we actually live, uh, which is usually some form of proving and uh, the pinging between self-loathing and self-aggrandizement. And John, didn't you once say, or Fitzsimmons Allison said that when he, on death row, everyone had great self-esteem. Yeah, he said he never met people with such high self-esteem as the the people he visited on death row. And what what was he talking about there? What what does that mean? Uh, I think there was a sense of self-assuredness that was basically sociopathic. And that basically total self-assurance is the, the is self-assurance. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. I mean, it is, is sociopathic. Uh, whereas if you don't have doubts about yourself, and if you don't, in truth, at some area of your life, lack confidence, then you don't really know yourself and are not actually dealing with the true assessment of life. Um, and it causes you to thus completely go down the wrong path if self-assurance is the goal, I guess. Uh, that was what he was implying. I'm not that if you have... I mean, you don't become a, a serial killer if you uh, believe in yourself. <laughs> I'm not saying that exactly, <laughs> but what we are... You don't? Well, you know, the other line from Fitz that's so classic is, you know you're preaching the gospel when people start calling you antinomian. Like, that you're saying that all the things that matter don't actually matter, right? That's the, the critique that you want to hear as a preacher, to understand that indeed you are preaching Christianity into a heathen and secular world that does not operate on those currencies. Um, the other thing I just wanted yeah. to add is I watched that new Pixar movie, Soul, last night. Mm. It's pro- probably a lot of people are watching it at the moment. I loved the disparaging portrait of the accounting office, right? Did you notice the accountant is basically the only villain? It's my job to keep track of this stuff, Jerry. 
on the accountant. I'm always counting. And yep. and that it is the the thing that jeopardizes people's experience both of life and eternity and it's always the area that opens the door to the pitfalls is when you get into the world of accounts balancing, sheets and ledgers, measurements, keeping things even. I was watching again last night and he's doing the tally of lives and deaths and he and and they he says it's off the count is off. He's, and and then the other sort of the authority figure says it hasn't been off in centuries. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, they just referenced Jesus. That's what they did in that scene. And, and they, because it, Pete Doctor made the movie, I guarantee you that's what that like was about. It felt like a Capon illustration, the whole thing. Yeah, it, it's only been in, in, it's only been off once. Uh, Sim, though, where, where, what, are you, what, what's going on in your brain? Well, I mean, just partly when, as you were talking about how, you know, we, we all actually live in this terror of judgment. It's this time of year in Cambridge, I, I spend a lot of my time with our MPhil program in Christian theology. And uh, this is basically the time of year where they, they've been here long enough to be socialized into how high the standards are and how, uh, um, and maybe they want to stay, they want to maybe stay on and do a PhD, uh, and, um, but they haven't yet gotten any feedback. Um, and so it's a misery, and then often people are applying for PhD programs. So it's just a point where all these very high achieving people who've gotten into Cambridge and are working extremely hard and are, are often very, um, uh, I mean, just, you know, fantastic uh, people, fantastic scholars, but they are, they all get haggard. They all get um, unhappy, I think, this time of year because they are living, you know, a nine month MPhil is a giant piece of judgment uh, for them. How, you know, you, you got in, at first they thought it was the, they, they'd made it because they got into Cambridge. Then the minute they land, they're like, oh, wait, I have to do a certain level. Now that I'm here, the bars have, uh, the, 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 what, you know, um, the posts have shifted. And they have to do well at a certain kind of level to, to again to, to feel a sense of enoughness or whatever it is. And just the way in which you know, people get, you know, they lose weight, they get pale. Uh, you know, by the end of the year, it all like it kind of recovers. And and part of your job as a teacher is to help them um, be kind to them uh, in that kind of context. But it's basically a nine month judgment, or it can be construed that way. And so to me, it's just so obvious that these things are incredibly still relevant. That's one very specific um, environment, but I think we we see it. Um, we see it everywhere. So that's, that's what I was, uh, I was thinking about there. Um, yeah, that, that line from Dorothy Martin about someone sort of becoming your ally against the forces that are against mm -hmm. you, I really like that. Uh, because that encompasses not just people who have discovered that they're terrible people, though I do think that is a, a universal. It also covers maybe people who are totally convinced that they're terrible and need someone to get on their side and feel like, um, you know what, actually, you are worth something. You do have some things to offer here. Um, you are not uh, totally hopeless despite this, that, and the other. So there, there's forms of grace that are also, can be just an, an affirmation, not just abstractly, but of, of uh, I mean, the, the, what it looks like, what it feels like in practice um, can just be recognizing that you actually have something to offer. Um, so that's an element of it I wanted to not, not lose. Oh, absolutely. Grace um, gets a lot of resistance. You'd almost think that the person who really brought the idea most front and center, like that the world just would have crucified him or something. <laughs> I know it, it makes total sense having read the New Testament, but it still is the locus of any... I remember when I was a youth minister and I was, you know, I was probably cocky and doing going about it the wrong way. And, you know, one of the things that 
one of the insights John shared with me when I saw him last week, and I think it's deeply true, is that you can't... The how you hold a position is almost as important as the position you hold, which is another way of saying that how you communicate grace, how you talk about grace, has it's got to be gracious. It can't be a bludgeon, uh, or because it, it just doesn't compute that way. And I, perhaps you know, when people really get a hold of this, when they when they really experience it for the first time, and sort of they have that, often have an ex, uh, it's like a second conversion or a just first conversion when they really get the gravity of what grace is really saying, what what God's grace is for them. Um, they ha- they kind of overreact, and but I remember someone got very upset, and in 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 a way that I was, I realized, oh my gosh, this person thinks that I'm trying to take something away from them. I I this I I'm experiencing grace as something that's was being given, but they they something that they feel that they've earned some sort of but their behavior and obeying the rules and you know uh, walking the straight and narrow, they don't. The idea that that didn't count for anything uh, is one that they were really willing to, you know, uh, punch me in the teeth over. And I thought that's uh, that's interesting. And you know, and over the years, grace. Uh, you know, what does Dad say? There's something in God's grace to offend everyone except for the person who needs it at the yeah. time. <laughs> And I think there's, he's right about that. There's something to offend me. You know, I, there's plenty of people in my life that I do not want to, for them to experience any kind of amnesty. Yeah. <laughs> I want them to get what they deserve because that's the only way they'll ever change. And yet here I am, you know, spending my breaths uh, every day, nine to five, talking about the importance of the opposite of that. So what kind of resistance, how do you, have you seen that resistance? How do you respond to that resistance? For me, the quintessential sort of illustration of these dynamics is Jesus's parable of the workers in the vineyard, the same one that Dorothy Martin talks about. I sometimes think this parable is so radical, it is so otherworldly or alien, uh, that even if this is the only piece of Jesus's teaching that we still had, it would be famous, uh, because it is so just diametrically opposed to everything about the way we make sense of life, around earning, around merit, around keeping things even, Stephen. And what is so powerful about grace, as you're talking about, is is in one sense, it takes the person who's in the negative category, and it brings them back up into the black from the red, right? But the thing that you're talking about and where the pushback usually comes from is the fact that it levels the black back down to zero. In other words, it, 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 it not only... Um, relieves you of the burden of justification by works, it also takes away the false sense of security that we have in our achievements. And that is for many people, are you saying that where I went to school doesn't matter? I know my first Sunday at the church, I preached a sermon that was critical of people wanting to write memoirs, because I said that, you know, basically, a lot of older people get to the end of their life and they want to write a memoir. And the only people who will read it are, or they're writing it for their children. And they're writing it to sort of justify themselves. And um, the truth is their children don't want to read it and are embarrassed by most of what you'll probably write and disagree with the way you're going to portray things. And then it will just be another self-published nothing, right? Now that is also what Grace says about our attributes, And that is a major blow if you're banking 
on your accomplishments or your pedigree or, you know, any of that material. Um, and so we're not disputing that people do value those things, right? We're just saying that our version of things doesn't. And now you don't have to like that idea, uh, but if you are in some way exhausted by that approach, then this will seem like uh, a deep, cool pool of water to drink from. You know, it's like you feel, imagine living your entire life only drinking Diet Coke. It's the only way you'd ever had to hydrate, right? And then one day, imagine somebody just gives you like a really good bottle of beautiful artesian uh, mineral water. And you drink it for the first time, and it's like the ultimate palate cleanser. There's no chemicals in it. You know, I mean, that's what I feel like grace often is like. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. I guess, Dave, in response to your, you know, the question about the, the pushback, uh, there, there are kind of two things I would want to say. One is, um, just, to, just to add to what's already been said, one is that I think, for whatever reason, just because human beings are human beings, um, but it's especially tragic, I guess. Christianity and Christians are often prone to uh, somehow devolving, ossifying, subtly developing into um, being in a position where they find grace uncomfortable. Uh, if it, it somehow your sense of identity gets caught up with being a good Christian or your sense of obedience or whatever it is, I don't, I don't, I don't fully. I don't. I relate so little based on how I grew up that I find it hard to characterize well. But I clearly see it. You know, people get very uncomfortable. Um, Christians who sort of really do feel like it matters hugely to them that Christians are are better than other people morally in some sense, even if they wouldn't. Even if the way that you say that is by having the right theology of of how sinful everyone is. Uh, nevertheless, it comes across as a as a me versus them uh, superiority thing, and it's very very threatening. I think to Christians for. Um, which is uh, such a shame. Um, uh, but the other side of it, though, I think there is just a purely kind of... Um, what I've experienced, especially in sort of professional theology, is that um, there's not a lot of understanding of the kind of things specifically that we're talking about out there. And so a lot of people really genuinely think that, oh, well, that would just will lead to people doing whatever and being terrible. Um, and, uh, you know, there really are very strong arguments against that that are, you can just make and people are, are convinced by, you know, intellectually once you've really gone through it. And so partly I think people have this worry about sort of the world spinning off into chaos uh, in a sort of landscape where what you do, even as a Christian, fundamentally um, doesn't matter in terms of your standing before uh, God. So there, there's two sides of it. So I, I, I want it, there are people I want to talk to, you know, who are, who sort of say, well, doesn't, that just sounds like you're not going to take seriously the second half of various Pauline epistles. And I say, well, no, let's, let's, let's talk about that. That there are answers there. Um, I've just, you know, tried to write about some of them in, in my book, but, um, but then there's this kind of knee-jerk Phariseeism, uh, which it's very easy to, to understand, um, partly because it's, it's there in, in the New Testament, so clearly that the anxiety uh, about that Jesus' ministry generated on, on exactly these kinds of fronts. Um, so anyway, those would be the two things. Specifically, it's Christians who get most worried about grace, at least in my experience. Um, but also that, that sometimes people, you know, people just haven't heard it before and, and, and in, a, in a conceptually and compelling way.
Yeah, and institutions, when they try to perpetuate themselves, as they have every you know reason to do so, especially if it's an institution like the church, which is set up around something beautiful, um, there's a control is the default assumption of how we're going to get there, how we're going to c- continue to do, that to do what we're doing, and especially if we think what we're doing is good, we want to do it as much as well as we can with as many people as we can and you know, spread that message. And so if you're telling people it doesn't really matter if they, if they, if they show up or if they give money, uh, well, that seems to not uh, give us the best odds of of perpetuating the institution. And so you want to clamp down. You say, well, you know, still, please, you know, please give some money or please, uh, you know, please show up. And um, I was thinking of a friend of mine who, this is why it's very difficult to start a church that is really um, based around the grace of God, because uh, you need to have some people there at the beginning who really do feel like uh, it's the right thing to do to give their money and to show up, especially, uh, because, and, and there's a little bit of fear involved uh, when they do that, or a little bit of, you know, even if it's subconscious. Um because I had a friend who we we were, I was helping him start a church, and we really was preaching. He was trying to do it around the, you know, hundred, two hundred proof grace of God, and the message was exciting. People were coming. It was very, very but then, then uh, as he got more and more nervous, uh, and which was completely understandable. He had a bunch of kids and a wife. He started sort of getting really nervous that people weren't coming enough, and so there was at one point where he uh, asked people to sign a pledge, not that they would give money, but that they would show up for three out of four Sundays, and I, 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 it, it caused a real crisis in, um, he and I would talk about it, it's like, I think this is the end of the line if we've gotten to this stage, because you cannot have people signing pledges if you're, it, it doesn't compute. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. It simply doesn't compute if you, what you're trying to preach is, uh, you know, when they're actually there, is that it doesn't matter if they're actually there. Uh, because that's another, that's what people are saying. You're saying what I do doesn't matter. And we've heard enough of that, and the world is in terrible shape, and that's a way that, uh, you know, terrible systems are perpetuated, and all sorts of uh, people let each other off the hook because through this grace thing. And we've had enough of that. Now it's time to keep everyone accountable. And you want to say, you always want to respond with the Robert Capon thing. It's like, is it really? Is are, is grace, mercy, kindness really what's screwed up the world? Or is it, you know, reciprocity, revenge, and, uh, you know, accusation? And, uh, and and that's that's a very uncomfortable thing because part of the preaching grace is you don't get to control the outcome, and which, which means you get to see far greater outcomes uh, as, you know, just spontaneous responses, but you also, sometimes people will take advantage. They will not, they will sort of just parade their, they, they will become a grace Nazi. And that's part of growing up, you know, I think, I think it's, or it's part of just growing up in the faith, perhaps, is to become a little more settled in that vision of things. Um, but I think it's also okay for people to overreact and kind of, you know, go, go nuts for a little while. As long as you're not trying to plant a church, you're in good shape. Yeah, trusting in the sufficiency of God totally is the great challenge, whether it's, you know, the morning you wake up or, you know, the foundation of your entire life looking down the line. Um, I find that believing this is true is always the the struggle. Um, But I always want to say to people, they sort of say basically what we're doing is checking out. 
that we're, you know, they're talking about passivism uh, as though it, that's a choice that people can make. Um, and what we're talking about is passivity as a choice that has been made for us or because of a choice that has been made for us. Um, but what, what happens is it's not that we're um, de- detaching. It's not really Buddhist in that sense. What we're doing is we're mounting a different kind of an offensive, right, where we go in from the flank rather than the full frontal assault approach. And we find that that gets much better results on top of everything else. Not only do we believe that's the right approach, but also we believe that that actually achieves the ends that the full frontal assault approach is trying to get at much more effectively and much less contrived and much more with long-term lasting vigor. Uh, And so, you know, I always want to say that, um, like, it's, the, the saying I love is, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. That is a sort of old Southern saying, and I think, to me, that is me saying I, I believe that ultimately grace effects more change and makes a bigger difference and gets to the ends that we all agree about more efficiently and more productively than the alternative method. Part, partly because the alternative will make you hate other people. Uh, it, the, you're just going to be focused on why they're not showing up at your church. Yeah, for every action, there's because an equal I've, and opposite counter I've reaction. told you to, and then all of a sudden they don't want to show up at all, and that you're dealing with that. And, uh, you know, I think it, the, the addendum to the catch more flies with honey than with vinegar is simply, uh, you know, you'll catch more flies with honey uh, than with vinegar, but it, it'll take a lot longer. <laughs> it's not going to happen immediately. I often say to people, I play the long game, you know, that I, they'll say, well, the person came to church and then they, they left and then they stopped coming. And I am from the day I meet the person, I am, I'm looking to both plant the seeds that will be there to be harvested often, not for many, many years. Yeah. Jenny in in Forrest Gump may not come back to the farm till the very end. Yeah. You know, (laughs) but you know what Capon says? Jenny! that I love. He says, God or grace is like a casino. And it may appear that occasionally the people who show up at the casino win money, but at the end of the day, the casino always comes out on top. Play long enough, you never change the stakes. The house takes you. Unless when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big and then you take the house. Been practicing this speech. A little bit. Did I rush it? Felt like I rushed it. was good. I liked it. You know, and and that's how (laughs) I find, I'm always thinking about it. Um, you, they may not come for a few Sundays, but in the long term, we'll have their heart. Because it allows you to treat people well. I mean, that's what the, and treat people as human beings and not just as, as metrics and, and numbers. You, you don't need so much from, from someone. Um, you can really, uh, I mean, that's the hallmarks of, 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 a, of a graceful ministry to me. It's, it's not just, it's not sort of what, simply what's said or what's formally described or what's listed on the website. It's, it's how people are actually treated. And, um, you know, and I've, you know, sometimes you, and you can be treated this way by someone who may not formally say the same things as you. I mean, I, I had the most amazing uh, minister in college who was just, I just never felt judged for by for a minute. I felt cared for. I felt advocated. Uh, I felt attended to. I felt known, even though I didn't feel at that point like I was much worth knowing. And he was just there. And uh, it took about a year for me to kind of get hooked. But once I did, you know, I would have taken a bullet um, for this guy, just because I felt he didn't need something from me. 
he just loved me. Uh, and so that was just an experience of, and it really does, when the, when the real thing is actually experienced in a real relationship, it's, it, it is none of the caricatures. I mean, so that's the final question, Sim. I mean, that, that's where do you experience grace? I mean, that's the, um, because we're always looking for analogies. Um, not, nothing's going to be perfect, by the way. This is another pushback you get, is that people say, well, human beings always attach strings. Like, there's no such thing as unconditional love in human relationships. And you want to say, well, yes, there actually is in terms of how it's received. Um, that It cannot be manipulated. Manipulated. It cannot. It's not a tactic, um, and I may not know that the other person has strings or something like that, or that they're operating. But a lot of times, um, you know, I think of that wonderful. Uh, we've told a story on the mocking cast, or it was it was about this kid whose parents were going through a divorce, and he's called to the um, you know the guidance counselor's office, and the guidance counselor just asks him how he's doing. He completely lies and says everything's fine, and he says they got talking about baseball cards, and he ends up giving him a Pedro Guerrero rookie card, and it's this act of grace that unlocks everything in the child. He doesn't, he can't compute it. He the the person didn't know he he was probably doing it in order to get the kid to open up there was a in other words there was a hopeful result but he experienced it as a complete and utter surprise and as as something that he couldn't believe the other guy would part with so that there was a cost to it and it was an act of love that were by which he felt affirmed in the midst of his um total confusion and in fact probably self-loathing or blame about the, what's going on at home and it, it he he says years later he doesn't remember almost anything else about that school about that year but he remembers that and that's what baseball cards mean to him baseball cards equals grace and he again he wouldn't even use that i don't think he even uses the term in that in that story but it's the it, people get uh, they they think um that it can somehow grace us uh, when we talk about it horizontally, you, it becomes a new strategy and tactic. Well, and that's based and, uh, on that's based on the assumption that it's a choice people can make, right? As opposed yeah. to it is um, an intervenient act of the Holy Spirit that takes us into the territory that is against the grain of our very being. And other people yeah. are in, inevitably so involved. So I just want to say that. there is pure grace even in the relational dynamics to the extent that God has intervened upon human nature and our fallen wiring, you know, I mean, because we can't make this choice. We will not be gracious people unless God, um, or to the extent, unless God, you know, intervenes and um, basically inspires, right, puts the spirit in us to act in this way. So even though I believe in grace and want to bed down and, and do believe it achieves results and whatever, my big problem is I can't do it unless the yeah. inspiration comes uh, from God. Uh, and, and come to find out, a lot of times the most gracious acts that you've been on the receiving end of, the other person didn't even know they were doing or they don't, don't even remember. I mean, how many times have we heard that story? Uh, you said something to me at this point, and I was like, what? I have no, I don't recall that at all. See, I thought I was doing such and such. And so you do have this beautiful, like, we hold on to those examples, not as a way of prescribing a new way to get people to do what you want them to do, change in that way, but as a way to describe how it is that people ever actually change um, or ever actually uh, grow or simply uh, just crack open and soften. Maybe that's a way of talking about it.
then do you experience grace or any um, any avenues you find that are a little bit more reliable than others? Well, one thing I was thinking about uh, in the lead up to this uh, podcast is that um, I think a lot of the most powerful examples that really have shaped me and that I go to and that still have this emotional resonance for me happened when I was younger, um, as a child, or, or especially in kind of uh, when I was in college. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, so sometimes you sort of the, the, these there are these these life defining experiences uh, of grace and actually if you often if you look at someone's sort of career path or, or different kinds of things often there really is this this moment where someone loved them and was graceful to them sort of a la Valjean and in, in Les Mis you know that 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 was a complete had this power to completely change the direction of a life and so for me partly it's it's in the past um, it's funny for me for a long time it was about academic achievement. You know, desperately wanting it, not feeling like I had it or 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 deserved it or was capable of it. Um, and it's funny, that's faded a bit. I, now it's much more like, oh, I've got to write references, and you know, <laughs> the, the the academia is no longer this star that I'm chasing in the same way. So it's no longer an area where that's happening uh, with me in the same way that it used to. But um, certainly, you know, in a relationship, uh, in a marriage, there are times, even after all these years, where uh, you know, the, the, the best weeks are the ones where, um, where you felt loved despite yourself, you know, by your spouse. Um, or the, you know, the, by the other morning, I was, we were awake just two days ago, we woke up and, and our seven-year-old Arthur was, I happened to be getting up right as he was coming. He always comes to our bed and he saw me from the other end of the, of the hallway and his eyes just lit up. And I just had this immediate response, which, you know, you don't always have. Some of it's like, oh, no, they need me. I, I have some other stuff I got to do. I'm stressed. I'm busy. I'm anxious. But that time of the morning during vacation, I was ready to sort of see the joy in Arthur's face. And just the idea that he would feel that joy in seeing me. Um, and he ran up and, you know, I had, had to grab him as he leapt into my arms, literally, uh, and just give me this hug. And, and I'm partly like, oh, how much longer will he do this and all that kind of stuff. But... Um, but that, to me, I guess it's funny. I, make, I began telling that story as, as somehow he sees me as Grace, but actually it's clearly mm. the other way around. <laughs> uh, that he loves I, you no matter I what. Felt that he, he complete and just loved me with his whole being, his whole face and body. And uh, so that was a time when I felt loved. This uh, is about recently. love. And I'm back with you guys on the love train now that I think about it. Because the only way that we really experience grace in the world is through loving dynamics. And the main way that we experience those, obviously, is in relationship with other human beings. And um, so that's where often we learn a lot about this stuff. But David, you mentioned it. And Simeon, you mentioned it. Think about the people you know who you love and who will just be there for you no matter what, you know, and I think about, you know, friends like Jacob Smith from Calvary St. George's and you just know that guy's in your corner with love no matter what, or John Hansen, the former senior warden, there are people who have been gracious and loving and non-judgmental and in my corner regardless of come what may uh, for 20 years, you know, and I still want to call them when the stuff hits the fan, you know? Um, yeah. And that's, that's, be I mean, that's really beautiful because one of the curses of middle age, I think, is that people are, you're, you're needed. 
you're at a place in your career where you're, you become, or at least you rise to a level where you're, you, you're under the illusion that you're necessary and people are depending on you, whether that be your colleagues, whether that be your, your spouse, whether that be your children. And there's something about, I think, that uh, grace can get lost in the shuffle. Grace doesn't need anything from you. <laughs> You know, uh, you're talking about people, both of you are talking about people that, yes, your child needs something from you, but in that moment, they just want love. John, you're talking about people that knew you before you were needed in any way, and they're not the same people. Although you can love the folks in your immediate vicinity, but somehow, I think that uh, this is why some of those early, why people are often converted during times, like during their 20s, is because it, it almost precedes that you can be loved b- before anything you're capable of, you know, because you're haven't been, you're not capable of very much. <laughs> uh, remember what, what are they, what, like when, 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 uh, when uh, football players get really famous, you know, they always want to re- or rappers, they always reconnect with the people that knew them before they were famous because those are the people they feel that love them for who they are, not for what they've done or not for what they can do for you. And so those are the entourage is always filled with those, with those folks. And so I, I think there's something to that. And, but most, of course, most of the time you great romantic relationships, as dad always says, are founded on some form of uh, being loved in, in the midst of your, your weakness or your vulnerability or simply your nakedness. Uh, we, we love those who, who see the worst in us and don't turn their face away is how Walker Percy puts it. And he's talking about how he's never, the, the character never felt more loved than when they were in, in, in a mental institution. Wow. <laughs> because they, had been completely exposed for who they were, and then there were all these fellow degenerates who, uh, kind of a cuckoo's nest thing, where they were all, he was loved in that, and he said, I wish he could stay there forever. And that's sort of a vision of the church, I think, um, that will never be realized, but is always be chased. Um, this is why I go going in like a small group setting, you know, if you actually get involved in Bible studies, or times where you're regularly connecting with other Christians about the ins and outs of your daily life, where this is where grace plays out, because you go through stuff, and over time, you have this message applied to life situations. And there's sort of always the initial situation where it's applied to that kind of amounts to the conversion, so to speak. And then there are the subsequent uh, rollouts of this still being the undergirding truth. And you need some life experience with people over and over and them applying grace to you again and again before it really begins to, I think, shape your whole worldview and become something you actually look back and trust looking forward because you've got some experience of it working, not just initially, but subsequently as well. Yeah, okay, this one comes from Vince Graham, my daughter's godfather, and I learned this story at his mother's funeral. He had a very gracious, devout, wonderful mother um, in growing up in Atlanta, outside of Atlanta in Georgia. And at Christmas time, um, they used to do a white elephant gift exchange where rather than everybody try to buy gifts for everybody in the family, it was everybody buy one good gift and put it under the tree. You could take somebody else's gift or you could open a new gift, right? And what always happens uh-huh. in those exchanges is the, the most coveted gift becomes the thing that people keep stealing from each other and trying to get. 
So they started opening presents, and a few in um, opened the present that his mother uh, had put under the tree. And it was incredible. It was like an all-expenses-paid trip, like, you know, like on a cruise. And um, quickly it outshone, you know, over all of the other possible gifts. And everybody in the family started scrambling, trying to steal the gift. And then finally, it was the mother's turn. And she, instead of going for that gift, went under the tree and pulled out another gift and opened it. And inside was an envelope with every single member of the family's name on it. And it turned out that all of them had received the same amazing gift. And they had been scrambling for it the whole time, each to try to get it and feeling like if they didn't earn it over and against other people, they wouldn't get it. And there were only a few, you know, one to go around. And instead, they actually were about to discover that they were all in possession of the gift. And all of their scrambling in that moment looked totally foolish. And to me, I love that illustration of what grace looks like. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks, Vince. Well, so let's let's talk about some uh, examples, some books, novels, uh, music um, that makes you gives you some sense of grace. Over the years, you know, there's so many movies that the climactic scene is some instance of grace, and so it's hard to talk about them without giving them away. But I'll just say there there are two that always spring to mind that I've spoken about and um, that are kind of right of the era when I was taking these things in on a very deep level, and that's the movie about a boy which has an incredible act of grace that occurs um, and the mutual giving and receiving and sort of a so- absolute, the softening, the growing up. But it, there's also almost like a substitutionary aspect to it that is that I found to be very helpful and uh, undeniably uh, powerful. And the second is Little Miss Sunshine. I've always felt that the that there the, 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 in Little Miss Sunshine, in fact, that this movie, you have a father who is constantly talking about people's need to be better, and give, he's got these ten steps that people need to follow in order to kind of become self-actualized. And then the end is a beauty contest, uh, you know. And I won't really give it away, but let's just say that uh, the resurrection of this broken family occurs through uh, the coming together in weakness and, and sort of a, a counterintuitive, a different route to, to, to wholeness than the one that is, on, that is actually being uh, carried out, in, which is a contest. There's a different route to uh, goodness and wholeness and, 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 and other serving, uh, you know, sort of love uh, that you see played out. And those were one of the reasons why those two movies, I think... Uh, captivated people uh books uh, I, I i it doesn't really get better than les miserables uh, when it comes to grace being the change agent and the fuel and the ultimately the really the be all end all of life um uh, and it's it juxtaposed with the law in a, in a way that feels you know ripped out of the new testament so what what what, what springs to mind for you guys for me uh I mean, Flame is absolutely, especially when I remember listening when early days as a Christian 
sort of end of high school kind of time, uh, listening to the, this, the CD of the Broadway recording and just coming to understand uh, this, you know, <laughs> much more about God and about um, Christianity than I, than I ever did. Uh, I think, um, one thing I, I mentioned earlier, that um, Father Zosima, the, the, the first sort of 80 pages of Brothers Karamazov, a lot of it is this conversa- series of conversations with this sort of saint figure, Father Zosima, about life. And there's this moment with a woman who comes to him uh, who feels like she's, she's trying to do everything right religiously and, and keeps getting further. The farther she tries, the further she feels that she's gotten. And he says something to the effect of, uh, you're on the right path, keep trying, and the more you try, the further you will recede, you, you, will, you will get away from your goal, and at the moment where you finally realize how far you are away from it and give up, you will find that God's grace was there with you the whole time, and that you, were, you, will, you will reach the end that, that you sought. Um, and that is, uh, that just stuck with me and always has that, uh, that moment. Um, there's something similar about the dynamics of the, the, the horse and his boy, the C.S. Lewis novel, the, the dynamics of um, you know, the, the famous walk in the mountains in the fog where he realizes that God was with him the whole time, to me, always gets the sort of heartstrings um, in terms of uh, God's grace specifically um, and, and the contrast between what we think is happening in the world and, and God's you know, you catastrophic love that is there uh, the whole time, nevertheless. So those are two things uh, I think about. Yeah, so for me, um, few few things come to mind. Uh, first is just, if you've never read any Robert Capon, you know, he's a really great guy who, it's it, he's sort of like the Episcopal Church's own C.S. Lewis in the sense that uh, he's really gets creative because of grace. And he's willing to take all kinds of fun risks in his writing. And so his work on the parables uh, called Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment by Capon, it's, you know, it's sort of seminary level reading. It's, I find it's a little difficult for most parishioners, but there are excerpts. It is so mind-blowing, and it's just a great, gracious pool to swim in. Um, and then I a little more accessible, um, from a wonderful Catholic priest, uh, named, um, Father Greg Boyle, who's, uh, a minister out in California, who's gotten some notoriety. He wrote an incredible book that's called Tattoos on the Heart. That's the story of his ministry in the inner city barrios of Los Angeles to gang members. And that book is about, it's not just like one sermon illustration, it's about 19 sermons. You can preach for all of Lent from that single book. Um, <laughs> Tattoos on the Heart is such a great distillation of what grace in practice looks like. Theologically, he's coming from probably a pretty different place. You know, he makes what I would say is the most compelling argument for Imago Dei that I've ever heard, even though I, dis- I reject it. Um, I still find that what he does in in the moments, uh, pastorally, is as inspired as any ministry I've ever heard. And I want to be more like 
Greg Boyle in my ministry. So Tattoos on the Heart, big thumbs up from me. Then um, as far as preaching is concerned, for me, the king of the sermon illustration is Jim Monroe, uh, James Monroe, the former retired dean of uh, Springfield Cathedral in Western Mass, who's now on staff at Calvary St. George's. If you haven't heard a Jim Monroe sermon, um, you, you, you probably are missing out, because if you listen to his sermons, every one of them is filled with these illustrations of grace. And he's been beating that drum his entire life, and God has been beating that drum in his entire life. And that's what's so incredible about Jim's story. Uh, and then lastly, a movie that just has so much grace in it that I always come back to is the Academy Award Best Picture of the Year 1946 movie called The Best Years of Our Lives about three soldiers returning home from World War II. And one of them has lost the use of his arms. His name is Homer. He also got the, the Academy Award for the Best Actor that year. And that same guy, by the way, who made Ben-Hur. If you've never seen The Best Years of Our Lives, uh, watch the way Wilma loves Homer. And you will understand grace at a deeper level after you've done that. And it will rock your face off. That movie is not dated at all. You just can't believe Homer's storyline. And the other two stories are great, too. All of it drips with grace, the best years of our lives. Well, thank you. You know, the the thing that uh, we didn't give any music references, but I'll just say this. One of the reasons why I love the music of the Beach Boys, of Brian Wilson so much, has to do with grace and Pet Sounds, which is his uh, crowning achievement in the eyes of many people. Um, it, it centers on this theme, especially the song, You Still Believe in Me. After all I've said and done to you, you still believe in me. And uh, it, it's it's not only the source of inspiration, maybe, maybe for Tony Asher, the lyricist, but it was this kind of... Uh, being dumbstruck by uh, grace is this is is very close to um, the source of inspiration that that has rocketed that album into so many people's hearts. And I mean, to say nothing of God only knows where I'd be without you. Mm. So um, maybe we can end on with with, with that song playing. Um, but until um, you know, until next time, you two. Thank you so much for joining. And uh, what does he say? You know, may the grace of God uh, go, go with you. That passeth all understanding. <laughs> the peace. Ain't that all the right. truth? Bye, guys. Love you. I know perfectly well I'm not where I should be. I've been very away. You've been patient with me. Thanks so much for listening to us do our thing. We hope you've enjoyed it. We do invite you to leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you've enjoyed this. And please tell your friends about it. Audio production was provided by TJ Hester. And you can find Mockingbird on the web at www.mbird.com. See you next time.